Hey everyone, my name's Brayden, and you're listening to A Questioning Faith, a podcast crafted to allow us all to ask hard questions about what we believe and how our beliefs shape us. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Remember to like and subscribe to all of our social media channels. The links will be in the show notes. Well, hello, everybody. This is our fifth episode, I believe, of A Questioning Faith. Fourth episode. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out. We're only four or five in and we don't even, I don't even know. <laughs> so, this might be like, this might be number four with John. Number four with John. Yes. This is the so four number five overall. Excellent. Number five overall. And uh, uh, like Braden said, welcome John Thomas Fuller, author of Enter Into My Rest, The Mysteries of Living and Dying Revealed. A Questioning Faith is exploring the deep questions of faith. And today, perhaps we're going to begin with a word association conversation and see how words impact our faith. And then we'll get to the main question that we'll be exploring today. So used car salesman, first thoughts that come to mind. Slimy. <laughs> Hidden agenda. Hidden agenda. Taxes. <laughs> Tax evasion. <laughs> Judge me because I'm a woman. I don't know anything about cars. How about politician? Ooh. Ooh. I'm right. You know, like politicians better than used car salesmen? I don't they think I'd say that. Try to run the country. <laughs> so. uh, how about mountaintop experience? Let's go. Fresh air. Amazing. Free. The ocean. The ocean. The beach. Calm. Relaxing. Calm. Warm. Yeah. Jesus. Love. Joy. Yeah, I bristle. Joy. Okay, I even so bristle at Jesus. You even bristle at Jesus. I bristled just a little bit. I had to be honest about it. Yeah, tell me why. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I didn't. <laughs> but I there was um I don't know. There was just I think it's because I, of our, our preview conversation where we said, here, let's grease the wheels just a little bit. And so I maybe knew, I think my anxieties got the better of me and said, I think I know where we're headed. And so knowing where we were maybe going and all of a sudden having that, just even hearing Jesus. Oh, I know what it might mean to somebody. Yeah, yeah. Your brother, for example. Yeah. Who doesn't, who has some anger at the church. How mm -hmm. do, what do you think he would say when he hears the word Jesus? I think he still would, he would still express the same things. Love, welcoming, all the things that, that, that John and Liz said before I bristled. Um, <laughs> I 
but I don't know that he would say that about like me all the time. And I, and I think that's where with me being a person who is associated with Jesus, <laughs> uh, I don't live up to the name and none of us does. And, and when we can true, it's true. And maybe Braden, you just hit on the challenge of Jesus in our society. Let's say Western Europe and American society, because it's quite different in the Southern hemisphere. Jesus has a connotation, perhaps a negative connotation with a lot of people because of the hypocrisy of Christianity, the hypocrisy that seems so visible in Christianity. And it just keeps coming. One of the, the prophets, I would say prophet, one of the great Christian teachers who helped me when I was first getting, trying to understand who Jesus is, is Ravi Zacharias. And Ravi, R-A-V-I, he's from India and is a really gifted speaker and storyteller. And I'm guessing 30 years, maybe 35, 40 years of ministry all over the world, built a huge following, teaching people, doing a lot of campus tours. Uh, turns out the guy owned two massage parlors and was abusing the masseuses well into his 70s. All of this came out last year. Oh, he just passed away, and, and now his reputation is forever. All of the good work that he did, phenomenal teaching, all of it soiled because he was human. <laughs> but, you know, even, but no, no, not, I mean, he just made a horrific, a horrific decision. Um, and that is what I, I sense is why some people would have a, a quite negative connotation when they hear the word or the name Jesus. Can so I, today, can I, can I yeah, say something? Yeah, go ahead, so, John. I'm really grateful that you started with that story because it is now allowing me the opportunity to give wholehearted forgiveness to the ministers of so many of the churches I have attended. And I'm telling you right now, I'm really, really just being flooded with forgiveness. And I once said to an Indian woman friend, uh, because of, let's say, similar circumstances she experienced in her sphere, I said, remember, it's about the teachings, not the teacher. And I have met Ravi Zacharias several times, and he really is a beautiful human being. But what's more important to me in this circumstance is that you have actually opened a door of forgiveness for me that was not there. And I am so thankful. Wonderful. That's beautiful. So today, the question we are examining is, who is Jesus? And what difference does Jesus make in the world, in our lives? And I apologize if you guys are hearing construction noises. 
Um, I have a uh, uh, I have a crew putting siding on the front of the house, and for a while it was <laughs> it wasn't too bad, and now they've got some power tools out. So, uh, oh yeah, for sure. We start recording, and that's when, of course, of course, oh, we, of course. Well, we we told everybody on the first podcast, the introduction, when your phone went off, that there's going to be some life noises happening, like children or construction. So it's okay. So here we are with some life noises. Ah, uh, so let's begin with that question. If if each of you are comfortable, who is Jesus to you? I'll happily dive in. The when you sent the question over to me earlier in the week, my entire experience of Jesus, the man and Jesus, son of God, is colored by the fact that I had no theological foundation for at least 15 years. And consequently, I didn't have any mental constructs about who this guy is, what he represents, what he did for humanity. I resolved at an early stage just to follow him. And I'd been influenced by the Hindu path of devotion. And it's, um, it's pretty clear cut. You do whatever your teacher tells you to do, because you know that that individual is only interested in your growth as a spiritual being, end of statement. And so Jesus had my trust. Um, and that is one of the reasons why I only read the red letter, red letter edition of the Bible. I didn't want commentary. I didn't want another opinion. And it would probably be almost 20 years after following Jesus that I actually read Paul's letters because I wasn't interested in what Paul had to say. Uh, I'm grateful that I did read him because I love him. But I followed Jesus all the way. And because I had not learned a theological construct. I feel that I feel that a lot of what happened to me, and I feel that Jesus' use of me in the world was a function of not having mental barriers to experiencing all of those experiences. Wow, thank so, you, Jack. Yeah, so my experience is entirely, you know, let's say practical and experiential. Liz, how about you? Um, I think in a a young a young faith right now, um, I know that Jesus is God in human form. That. Uh, that that was God's experience was through Jesus. And so we can't really relate to God because we're not God. And so to be able to relate to human form, God, Jesus is our connection. Uh, and I, and I have to be honest, I still have a lot of questions about that and how I uh, work through that. Welcome to the club. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting more comfortable saying, yeah, I don't know, guys, <laughs> because yeah. I'm finding that more people are able to resonate with me and say, hey, I don't know either. So I'm really glad you asked. So I'm going to keep asking. 
what you heard John say was when he, okay, John, I'm going to speak for you, correct me, but when, if, if you need to, when you first started exploring who Jesus was, you grabbed a red letter Bible and you just read the red letters, the words red letter meaning in a red letter Bible, the words of Jesus are printed in red. Oh, when I began exploring who Jesus was, I read a Bible that I will not read anymore because I've over the time, over the years, I discovered that it was a paraphrase, that it actually was somebody's commentary on the, the scriptures. But it's a place to start. And, and you move on and you grow and you learn. And it's exciting to look back and say, oh, this is, this is where I was when I started? Cool. And I, now I've got some answers to questions. And the reason I've got these answers, I think, is because Jesus taught me. You know, and to go even a little farther into what your question was, because of the crucifixion and resurrection, all humanity was given the Holy Spirit on um, that Pentecost day. The, and the promise that was made is he will teach you all things. And I think that that really is what's so important because I appreciate the fact, Liz, that you said what you said, but like Eric says, you have to start somewhere and the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. It is a promise. And, and it's I, never and too late. It's never, it's too, never late. too late. So I'm going to make another promise. Hmm. On a questioning faith, we'll explore at some point who is the Holy Spirit. So that uh, will be one of our questions. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing tiny. Yeah, well, let's, Nothing not, tiny. let's not challenge ourselves or anything. <laughs> let's jump in. Braden, who is Jesus to you? Um, at this point in my life, Jesus has been several things. Um, Jesus has been most consistently probably a... I don't know quite how to explain it like a park ranger kind of person because I've been on what I feel like is this journey up and down these mountains and we've been kind of using that metaphor um, to describe our journey and I feel like you know up and down mountains you're taking trails you're in and out of the woods you're in and out of the bush and um, I feel like like all those times where I've wanted to like go explore some little nook of something. Whenever I got lost, Jesus has always been the one that kind of popped out of the wherever and said, hey, we're over here. We're, we're back this way. Come on. This is the way. Because I've been stuck on Jesus is the way. Jesus says, follow me. And so in, in, in that trail walking mentality it's yeah there's lots of little paths that we can go explore and and that's one of the wonderful things about being in a relationship with god with the universe with jesus 
is that we can explore those paths, but Jesus is the one standing there saying, when I'm lost, here's the way to come back. I am the way to come back so that you're not lost anymore. I like that. Jesus, for me, I'm going to echo, John didn't say this exactly, but I'm going to say my rabbi, my healer, lover, revealer, rabbi meaning teacher, guide, that in everything I aspire to be like Jesus. And, oh, I, I understand that people are going to hear that and say, yeah, 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 ego. I'm aspiring. <laughs> I'm, I'm aspiring, mm-hmm. right? I have so far to go, but I have, a, I have a, at least I have a model to follow in recognizing where I'm going. Similar to what you said, Braden. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to to study the history, to put the context of the word rabbi into perspective. When a when a rabbi would gather followers, they didn't. Ah, that's not really rabbis were the the pinnacle of this society, the pinnacle of the community. And every father was responsible for teaching his children to read, to, or at least to memorize. Even many people didn't know how to read, but they still memorized because the father or the teacher in town would recite scripture and the children would memorize it. And they all aspired to be a rabbi someday. Every child aspired to be a rabbi, at least in the cities. You know, you get out in the country, it's different. But in the cities, that's uh, where, there, where there were rabbis, the children aspired to be a disciple of a rabbi. And there were these, these great teachers who had huge followings. And by the time the children, the boys, would hit puberty, uh, they go through their bar mitzvah. At that age, if they weren't chosen by a rabbi to continue with their education, they just go back into the family business. And it was the cream of the crop. It was the kids that got the scholarship to Harvard that were chosen to follow a rabbi. And then from then, they would be that rabbi's responsibility. Completely and utterly that rabbi's responsibility. They'd leave home and follow the rabbi. And they did everything the rabbi did, including, some stories say, watching how the rabbi had sex so they could learn how to do it. Every part. Well, that's a new one for me. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Every part of life was the responsibility of the rabbi to teach the students. Imagine... Imagine if we were to take that perspective in trying to get to know Jesus. That every decision we make, every action we take, would begin with, how does Jesus do this? So that's 
that's exploring or that's fleshing out my aspiration. And I had a, I had a nasty fight with my wife and it was all my fault last night. So I got a long ways to go. <laughs> Man, don't we all? Yeah. Uh, so I, I want to explore that a little bit, that, uh, that argument I had with Brenda. And it wasn't Brenda that I was angry at. It was a manager I used to have, a district superintendent in the Methodist church who I disliked vehemently because ethically, I, I don't think he's a good person ethically. And he would often say, well, that's information. So you'd say something to him and he'd say, well, that's information. And I know that's how they, the district superintendents all went to a training through a training program and they're taught to say, well, don't get emotional. Just say that's information. And my wife has gone through the same training program. So she says, well, that's information. Um, and that drives me nuts because nothing words are not ever information ever every single word yeah so what liz liz go ahead and explain what you're saying so uh last week for our children's uh kids connect we're um, we're learning about god and we're learning about the bible but we're we're doing it with signs and dancing and everything so last week was my words can help or hurt and they, all, they, they can help or they can hurt. They're never neutral, ever. Mm -hmm. Our sentences are never neutral. We are never simply conveying a neutral, that's just information. Because they carry, words carry so much information. Our inflection, the look on our face the way we hold our bodies as we speak. So when I began this conversation this morning, that's why I wanted to play the little word game because there are no neutral words. Unfortunately, Jesus is not a neutral name. <clears throat> Jesus is, I'm not just offering you some information. Jesus was, was a human being who lived 2,000, however many years ago, and was called himself the son of God, and people believe he might actually be God. And that's not information. <laughs> We've got 2,000 years of emotion. Well, really, the, the way that you just said it, that is information. But that's not Jesus. But that's not Jesus. That's right. not Jesus. That's not the, like, that's stuff about Jesus, but it's not Jesus. Right. But even what I said, what somebody would say, Eric, you're totally wrong. That's not who Jesus, you know, that's not even accurate about information about Jesus. Mm. So I just, just offering the perspective as we explore questions to our audience who might not like what we say, that's okay. Please send comments. Mm. Go to stpaulumcssc.org and you'll find, if, if you don't find contact information, Braden will make sure that you do. Will, <laughs> it'll be there soon. I'll get, get my email up there and people can, uh, you can, you'll be able to click on our podcast page and, and connect with us. We'd love to hear from you and hear how our words 
connect with you and what what emotions they strike. So I'd like to step back in time, John, and go back to the spring of 1983 when you met Jesus. So in our conversation, as we explore who Jesus is, as Braden and Liz and I were talking yesterday, Braden, what did you say? Six degrees of separation. Oh, right. <laughs> so <laughs> we always talk about like the six degrees of separation or Kevin Bacon or like how many, how many actors can, there's that game of how many actors do you have to name before you can get to Kevin Bacon in a film or whatever. And I kind of made the comment that, holy cow, John's met Jesus face to face. I've met John. I'm two degrees. I got two degrees of separation. This is cool. <laughs> I want to. I want to throw a little something in there that inspires in me. Uh, John fourteen through seventeen. The Father and I are one, and you and Jesus are one. Ipso facto. Okay. So Eric, in answer to your question, um. I'm really glad you asked it because I did not give the backstory and I have not written about the backstory of that question. Well, can I, can I ask you to pause for just a second? Of course. Well, this is just a short, this is page 42 of the book. Did you choose your 42 stage journey? Did you choose page 42? To... <laughs> you know, I'll tell you something. I had nothing to do with the arrangement of the pictures or the page numbers or the chapter numbers. It's, <laughs> really quite um, its own uh, its own entity. So what I thought I'd do for the listeners, let's give them the context. I'll read this little Thank devotion. You. Yeah, that's a good okay. idea. Story. Six months later, same residence, spring of 1983, marked the first time the Lord came to me in a dream. I've been praying to see him. So desperately did I desire his presence. Now we enter the dream. Our Lord was sitting in a wheelchair. I was feeding him something with the texture of oatmeal, some of which dribbled from the corner of his mouth. Carefully, I wiped his mouth, at which point he allowed me to gaze into his eyes, those steady, gray, blue eyes, behind which the infinity of God's eternity shone calmly forth. I entered into the transcendent divinity beyond the face of the person and quickly lost self-awareness. You read beautifully. I love it. You're hired. Um, the backstory of that dovetails with what I began with in terms of my path. And having had the vision that I had at that time, and I saw the comprehensive nature of God's reality, and of course, you know, being very aware of the truth of the fact that each of us, at least to 1% of our natures, is in fact a spark of divinity. I began to practice the discipline of serving every human being as if he were Jesus. And I lacked discernment because I was very much a child at the time in my mind. But I was working at a nursing home and I was treating all of the elderly residents of the home 
as I would hopefully treat our Lord with all of the respect and love that a person in my situation could muster. So as I was feeding him the, what appeared to be oatmeal in the dream, and he was completely incapacitated there, what he was saying is, you know, he was seeing what I was accomplishing. The actual encounter with him was probably just his way of bringing me closer to him and encouraging me on that path. It's a very difficult path, as we all know. Not everybody chooses to behave as the Lord, and it's very difficult to treat somebody who's choosing not to behave as the Lord would behave, as if he or she were that incarnation of God. But uh, it is still to this day on my mind with every human interaction to the best of my ability. John, there is so much truth to what you said about the difficulty of the path. And I don't know if today is the day to explore this, but at some time it would probably be good to explore why in the world do I want to be a Christian? Because it's so crazy hard. And I'm not just saying crazy hard to follow Jesus. It's crazy hard to put up with the attitude and the negativity and the people who attack and uh, we were talking before we began about being being called a heretic because we don't believe exactly what other people might believe. It's not easy. <laughs> it is so not easy. You know, it's one of the things that I wrote in my notes about today's discussion. And I find it truly ironic that for those of us who claim to follow Jesus, we can't even agree with each other. And it's not by accident that there are 30 plus thousand denominations of Christianity and everybody else is wrong. That kind of contentiousness seems to contradict. And I have, I suspect that it may be one of the greatest um, anti-Christian motivations for anybody from another religion because you all can't even agree with each other. What do I want to do with that? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's my, my brother and I were having a conversation earlier this week that we talked about. Uh, we were talking about being content and being joyful. And this is the brother who has kind of, he not stepped outside of the church, but he's kind of just said, I don't really want anything to do with it. And, um, but as in our conversation, as we were talking about being content or being joyful, like I was using the word joyful and he was using the word content. And as we kept talking and trying to one up each other with our words, we realized we can't one up each other because we're talking about the same thing. Like we're both trying to convey the same meaning. We're just using a different word. And so I think John, where, where you're coming from is that, or one of the things that you might be trying to say, or I'm hearing, I don't know, um, is that until we can approach Jesus, God, 
with an understanding that my word for Jesus, my understanding of Jesus is just that. It is my understanding. And just like Eric, you, you know, we were talking that you've got the information that we're, that we're telling about Jesus. That information tells a particular story about Jesus, but it's not the story of Jesus in its entirety. And so if I can approach my spirituality, my preaching, my music making, my everything that I'm doing, understanding that it's from my perspective of who Jesus is, and I could be proven wrong at any moment. I'm just being willing and open to say, I could have been wrong about Jesus the whole time. And being okay with that. Absolutely. Being willing to enter into the mystery instead of being certain. Mm -hmm. Peter ends, E-N-N-S, for those listeners who like to read. Peter ends, The Sin of Certainty. Fabulous book. The Uh, Sin of what? Oh, Certainty. Sin of Certainty. So there's another aspect of Jesus. Jesus gives me identity. He gives me my identity. He helps me to know who I am and whose I am. And over the past year, this COVID year, Mm. I have been hearing Jesus whisper to me frequently, Eric, how do you know it's Jesus? Somebody might say, well, I don't know it's Jesus. It's just, I, I pray to Jesus constantly and I hear these whispers. So I'm going to assume that's Jesus talking to me. Jesus saying, Eric, stop worrying about tomorrow. Focus on today. That is so hard to do. But my identity is being defined by Jesus, who is saying, trust me. Jesus is the one I trust. A couple of, John, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, there's a couple more readings that I'd like to do. From your book, actually, I have a lot that I'd like to talk with you about. But how do you hear what I've just said about identity? Does does has Jesus given you your identity? Let us just say I aspire as you do, and he is my he is my template. Excellent. How do you know Jesus is real, somebody might ask. And you're asking that of me specifically? Of Liz and Brayden, of you? I would say, how do you ask the question one more time? How do you know that Jesus is real, or do, do you, would you say that you know Jesus is real? Hmm. I think that I would say, I, man, the sin of certainty thing is bugging me because I don't want to say yes. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I think I know that Jesus is real. 
I think that that whisper that I hear that you're talking about is Jesus. But a big part of that, the reason that I think that is because I've spent time listening for the voice and the voice has been consistent. The voice has sent a clear and consistent message in a similar tone, a similar approach, all of those things. Like it's coming from the same source. I can just tell. Kind of like John, when I was first reading the book and, and when we first had a chance to actually talk, I said, as I'm reading your book, John, I didn't even realize it until we talked, but I was reading it in your voice. Like there's just Good. something, there's Good. just something about when you know the voice, when you're, when there, when there's truthfulness in the voice, you know where it's coming from. I have to tell you, that is one of my number one objectives for writing it the way that I did. So good. So do I know Jesus? I, I, I'm, I'm mostly sure, but I'm still going to sit here and say, I'm open to being proven wrong that I think I know who Jesus is, but probably not completely. Liz, were you going to say something? Um, I, I will now. Um, because no, the reason I asked is I wanted to, I wanted to kind of dovetail to what Braden was saying. And I thought, I oh, heard, yes. you know, um, one of my uh, favorite authors and scientists from the past is Carl Sagan and Carl Sagan. Um, there's another author and, um, I suppose, public figure from the past, both of these people, and that was Joseph Campbell, both of these people chalked up Jesus to, you know, this really, really wonderful paradigm. And they, uh, I believe it was Joseph Campbell who said plain and simply, he doesn't believe that Jesus existed. And my takeaway from that is, you know, if they can hear the good that these stories tell, it's actually kind of irrelevant from an intellectual humanistic standpoint. Now, from the standpoint of, of course, the imparting of the Holy Spirit, that is something that those of us who have experienced the Holy Spirit can't pretend away. And that is perhaps an answer to Eric's question for this particular session the single most important thing that jesus did for all humanity for all time but when it comes to the actual moral teachings or ethical teachings and the same is true with buddha does it matter if buddha existed well he's teaching morals and ethics and they're pretty common sense when you break it down um you know it becomes secondary in importance so I'd like to keep that perspective, um, even though my own personal experience has been, you know, extreme compared to most people's. Heretic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, phew, that's out of the way. Actually, that's not the first time I've been called that. So you just said it doesn't matter if Jesus exists or not. <laughs> Well, I, that was qualified. 
Liz, where do you stand on knowing Jesus? I know Jesus as a character in the Bible. That's what I was taught, and that's what I know. And now that I've met Eric, uh, and we've been doing ministry together, Eric is an amazing storyteller. And Eric, in his sermon on Sunday, will put Jesus in uh, in a everyday situation, and it helps me to understand who Jesus is now. On top of going back into the Bible stories and really um, deconstructing that we were talking about, deconstructing Jesus at some point uh, in our former podcast, but just kind of going back and why did Jesus act this way? And so for me, Jesus was a character in the Bible, a person. We sang songs about him, but I don't know him. Mm -hmm. And I think in knowing who Jesus is, you have to build that relationship, just like you get to know anybody. And with, you know, with your help, I'm learning really who Jesus is and picturing Jesus in my life now. It's really hard um, for some people to look in the Bible and relate to that, mm -hmm. just reading the words. So when we're able to really understand the context and what what really is could be said as opposed to what you're reading and then apply it to your life now in finding Jesus and how Jesus would act in this world that we're in now. Um, I think that's the Jesus that I know and that I am every day getting to know who Jesus is. I am so glad that you phrased that the way you did, getting to know Jesus, because it is a relationship. And my mantra in ministry is the kingdom of God is not a place, it's a relationship. And maybe the more positive way to say that is the kingdom of God is a relationship, period. And just let it fall like that because we've been trained in American Christianity that the kingdom of God equals heaven, that's synonymous with heaven. And it just isn't. The kingdom of God is a relationship and that is biblical. And there are so many things you don't know about Braden, and Braden doesn't know about you, and I don't know about Brenda, even though we live together. I've been married to Brenda for 28 years. Ooh, I hope I got that right. <laughs> I was going to say, that was a big pause. <laughs> uh, and there is so much I don't know about her. We're still working on that relationship. So why would it be any different with Jesus? Exactly. Okay, John, a relationship and what Jesus does for us. Page 43, dusk came that night that changed all of our lives forever. Mm. We children went to bed and when the whole world, and when the whole world relaxed, the shadows of the trees, gently rustling leaves danced on our bamboo roll blinds. I pulled my blanket right up under my chin so no evil being could get me while I slept. That night was unexceptional in every way until, that is, my mom died. I heard the whispers of Jack and his wife, co-workers of my dad who'd driven all the way from Brigantine Island to stay the night. I heard the sirens whining in the, the distance as they took my mother to the hospital in the community to the south. The next morning, my dad gathered us together to break the news. 
When he said her mom was dead, my heart breathed a big sigh of relief. So from there, in that point of your life to where you are now, what has Jesus done for you? Well, in terms of shall we say, uh, counseling. I have had the good fortune to experience at least a modicum of mental health and emotional health. And that's actually a really kind of a fascinating question because there's so much in later chapters that pertain to that story. And there are things that aren't in the book. So for example, when I was in the ER in 2019, they gave me, they put me on a morphine drip. And when I was on that morphine drip, the room, became replaced with the light of God and Harold was there. The woman who was in chapter 14 at the very last story of chapter 14 was there. My sister was there and my mother was there. And I was actually kind of fascinated that all I felt for my mother in that space was love because there has never been, shall we say, in the physical plane, an opportunity to resolve any of what happened specifically at that house in New Jersey. So um, all of the emotional and spiritual and mental healing would have to go through other routes. And I feel that it was literally a part of the spiritual path um that and a few other things but that was always um you know an underlying motif at least for the 20 years i was in therapy now what is very interesting is about having encountered my mother in that context I felt that there was no need to forgive. In fact, um, given my mother's story, um, it would have been very difficult for her to have been different from who she was. So the forgiveness had already happened in my heart, such that in then that context in 2019, there was complete unity of just unity. So I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, absolutely, because you're describing another aspect of Jesus's character or identity, healer. Reconciliation is very, very big. There, in, in that same story in which you wrote, and I want to focus on this because I know there are so many people and hopefully God will connect 
these people to this podcast, to you, to this book, so many people who are desperately in pain emotionally, not just physical pain, but emotional pain. And the pain that you write about here, I have an adopted child. So I know this pain incredibly intimately, the pain of an adopted child who hits the teenage years and they cannot bring their minds, they cannot comprehend why mom gave me up. The pain that can be caused in a broken relationship with a mother at a young age is pain that we can't resolve by ourselves. An example, this is from page 44. Once I was grieving the fact that my mother who become so hard of heart had never said, I love you to me. As I customarily did before going to bed, I prayed. That night I petitioned God to take away my emptiness. Early the next morning, Ananda Maya Ma visited me for the first time. There in my bedroom was her presence as she filled me with golden light. That was not a yellow light or a metaphoric light. No, it was an all pervasive metallic gold light. And my heart was filled with the joy of the knowledge of a mother's love. To this day, my heart tangibly softens when I look into Maya's face, Ananda Maya's face. What a, what a beautiful gift. What a beautiful gift of healing that you are offered. Yes, beyond measure. Absolutely beyond measure. So, John the Heretic, who is Ananda Maya Ma? Oh, I'll tell you. Um, in Hinduism, there are people who are known to be avatars. And in Hinduism, an avatar is an enlightened being that embodies God, as it were. And Ananda Maima was in the Himalayas. I think she was north of Delhi. And she had a worldwide following. She was a tiny, tiny, tiny little woman. And she was so loving. Uh, it is possible for people to actually see videos of her online. They adored her. They absolutely adored her. And I happened to learn of her through a friend of mine who was a seeker. He came from war-torn Germany and he was searching for his teacher. And in the process of searching for his teacher, he shared with those of us who knew him, his process. Uh, his name is uh, Professor Klaus Witz, now Professor Emeritus Klaus Witz. And uh, he was probably my first um, kind of real spiritual guide. Never expected Ananda Maima to come. He'd actually seen Ananda Maima in person because she was still alive when um, he was a younger person. But anyhow, beautiful, 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 beautiful woman. And that day, 
will always be etched on my memory for eternity. That golden light, you know, um, silence is golden. And it's kind of like maybe the seventh or eighth heaven, if we shall use, you know, that construct, but it's, it's beautiful. What I also find beautiful, John, is that you bring in the people who have been intimately close to God, walk with Jesus currently, as we are told in, as Jesus himself said to the Pharisees who challenged him, Abraham is, Moses is, Elijah is. <laughs> they, they, they didn't die and disappear. They still exist. And they still walk with me. And Ananda still walks with Jesus. How can this be? <laughs> she's, not, she, she's not Christian. Well, and the, and the real trippy question going back to... Um, Jesus' reality is I know people to whom he has manifested in the flesh. So even the fleshly Jesus still walks the earth for his own purposes or for God's purposes. I can't explain why or why not, but he is still here. The, and this is another question, and I can't wait to explore this with Braden and Liz, too. I don't know if they've ever heard me say this, but this is heresy. Eric the, heretic. <laughs> Eric the heretic is going to speak. This is my favorite stuff. <laughs> so we are told, and this is one of the reasons I don't use creeds in, in worship, partly because the creeds that we have in the Christian tradition are man-made creeds written 400 to 1,200 years after Jesus died. And they aren't words that Jesus used. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. I don't believe it. He's already here. He's here right now judging me every moment, every action, every thought I have. I have a judge who says, Eric, seriously, come on, dude. Mm. Or as Braden would say, man, man. what are you doing? <laughs> and that's why I follow Jesus, because... Not only do I have a guide, I have a conscience, a living conscience who walks with me. Jesus won't come again because Jesus is already here. He's already come again. And if we have the certainty in these creeds, if we place our certainty in faith in creedal words, oh, the creeds can block us from experiencing the Jesus who's here right now. So Eric, your question to John led me down a rabbit hole to ask myself um, four more questions. So I'm gonna answer questions with questions. What has Jesus done for you from then to now? Can you see that he was with you? He was with you, can you see it? Were you looking for him? Because he's always been looking for you. Mm, that's beautiful. There is a poem from the late 1800s 
and I can't remember who wrote it, but anybody who's listening can Google search it and you'll find it. it's called the hound of heaven. Hmm. And the poet equates God to a bloodhound who will never get off the track. Chasing us down, never going to leave us alone. The hound of heaven pursuing us. Hmm. That, that's the Holy Spirit haunting us. The Holy Spirit haunting us, yes. Yeah, so that's what I thought of when I heard you say, he's looking for you. So as we, we've got a few minutes left, I wanted to bring this to a conclusion with the discussion of baptism. Because baptism is the rite that people have participated in when they have discovered that Jesus is real in their lives. Once we move from a place where we say, ah, yeah, Jesus guy, yeah, I'm not so sure about that, to having some encounters, whatever it is, whatever moves people to the point in which they say, oh, I want to be part of this. I want Jesus as my rabbi, my teacher. That's traditionally, and now things have changed. I'm offering a perspective going back to the very beginning of baptism. That's when people said, as Christians, I want to be baptized into relationship with Jesus. And I read this recently, and I've shared this with Braden and Liz. I've shared it with my congregation in the sermon, but this was one of those stunning aha teaching moments for me. There's my favorite commentary on the Gospel of Mark is called Binding the Strong Man. And it's it's fairly readable. Uh, I'm going to say it's fairly readable, but uh, but every time I say that, people take my books and they call me and they say, Eric, I can't make it through the first page. <laughs> so <laughs> I find it a very readable commentary. Uh, I think it's incredibly well written and not too scholarly. And in it, uh, Chad, Chad Myers is the author, and C-H-E-D-M-Y-E-R-S. He, he quotes somebody, and I can't remember who he's quoting. This wasn't Chad's idea, but he quoted it, that Jesus is the, and so I'm answering the, this is a question that pastors in the Methodist Church, where we have to go through a oral examination and answer a whole series of questions before we're ordained. And one of them is, what are the sacraments? Define the sacraments. And Liz, I offer this to you. Life is constantly learning. Jesus is constantly teaching me. I'm, every day I'm learning something new. So I'm seven years into ministry. I don't know how many baptisms I've done a lot. And now I'm still learning what baptism is. Chad Myers wrote the baptism in baptism. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? That's a question that so many people ask. It's, it's even in John's gospel. I think it's John's gospel. Why, why do you want me to baptize you? John the Baptist says, you should be baptizing me. And Chad gives us the answer. Jesus is the only person who was baptized into the water. Everybody else has been baptized in the water. Baptism is an outward invisible sign of us dying and being raised again, that the old person dies in the water. 
the ego dies in the water and the new person rises again. But Jesus is the only one who truly was baptized into the water and the old Jesus died. And the new Jesus, 100% committed to God, 100% devoted to God. Father, not my will, but your will be done. And he meant it and he did it. That's the Jesus that came up out of the water. And then the Holy Spirit, like a dove, settles upon Jesus. And God says, you are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And Jed offers the perspective that those words came because Jesus truly, truly gave God everything in that moment. And then followed, followed through on it. We go into the baptism, whether as an infant or as confirmands or at any point in our life, we go into baptism and we come out of that water with good intentions, but we truly haven't died to self. And in the Methodist faith, we spend the rest of our life being sanctified. We call it being sanctified, but really, truly, we're constantly in the process of being born again. And that's one of those words I wanted to throw out earlier because born again has such negative connotations for me because of the evangelical use of it. But truly, we, and I was, Liz, I was listening to that video or the, the audio that you and Braden recorded and we'll have to explore that in a podcast someday. Liz was talking about a very, very difficult birth of her daughter. And that birth took 24 hours. 24. Uh, Liz? Yeah, 26. <laughs> we are the oh. babies stuck. We are the babies with the head out and stuck. And slowly, slowly, we are being forced into the world of God. And it takes our entire life to be born. How's that oh. for a metaphor? Can I just jump in here for a second? Absolutely. Can I just jump in? You know, uh, Harold once said something to me that I did not get at the time. And he, we were sitting across the table uh, in his converted tool shed. And he said, if a snake sheds its skin too early, it will die. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but the reality is that there... God's time is always correct, period. Whether it's a lifetime of learning or whether it's instantaneous, really doesn't matter. It's in his time and it will be correct and he will make you into the person that he wants you to be. John, thank you for that. John Wesley Thanks, John. said very similar. He said that it is possible that somebody might achieve Christian perfection instantaneously. And by Christian perfection, he meant what Paul wrote. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me or lives in me. You know, when we get to that point where we see the world with Christ's eyes, that's what Wesley called Christian perfection. He says it's possible for somebody to instantly become perfect in Christ. Because God can do anything. Just I've never met anybody where that's the case. I've been working on yeah. it for almost 40 years right now, okay? 
Almost there, right? That's because I'm going to die. So would you take a moment and tell the audience who Harold is? Thank you for asking. So when I was a young man, Professor Emeritus Klaus Witz was friends with Harold. Harold was a carpenter from Washington State. I won't get into a huge number of stories, though I could share lots. And he and his family at the time that I met him were living in southwest Oregon in the uh, mountains of the Siskiyou Natu National Forest. Uh, he, at that time, he was kind of like a local guru. And at that time, he had a three-story tent because in his particular county, a tent by definition was any structure that had a canvas roof. So he built a three-story tent. And of <laughs> course, everything underneath it was of wood. And when I met him, it was just a few weeks after his tent had burned down. You see, tents were not taxed. And the local fire department felt it was necessary to put the fire out rather than letting it burn to the ground. So that's the skeleton of the structure I describe in the book. And he literally converted his tool shed into a two bedroom house. Um, so there I was with him temporarily living. I stayed with him for quite a while and knew him for several years. Uh, he is, he was the first person that I knew who would say that he had spoken with God. Now, those are big words to somebody who grew up in conventional American society. It's like, okay, but what little that I know is that's not possible. But okay, you know, Harold was a presence and you didn't contradict him. Um, Harold literally healed by the touch of his hand. He could read minds. Um, Harold teleported, he had the ability to teleport, he had the ability to levitate. And at the time I knew, he told of at least having died three times. Uh, the first time that he had died, he didn't know that he had died because he was still conscious. And uh, he went to his mother's house after having been wandering the desert of the Southwest for some time. She apparently lived in California and she opened the door, saw his face, slammed it in his face and says, you can't be here because we are not used to actually taking the Bible literally, okay? And because he had a death certificate associated with that, he could never leave the country because he couldn't get a passport. I mean, how do you prove that? You're like, well, I'm a resurrected body of that body or whatever. Um, so... Harold was my first teacher. Harold was, uh, he is instrumental in my growth. And he is, uh, he is an amazing presence. Thank you, thank you. I'm gonna close with the final words from the story in which you began talking about your mother's death. Uh, we can, close with some inspiration and some beauty. So you saw that golden light from Ananda Maima, 
And then you write, only one time, only one other time, have I seen that metallic gold light. That was while visiting one of the weeping icons at a church in the suburbs of Chicago. Looking on from the balcony, watching the relative chaos of the Orthodox Mass, trying to drown out the din of the steady stream of pilgrim onlookers wanting to witness the tears, I noticed that the, that the icon farthest on the left was radiating golden light. It was an image of the Holy Mother and not the weeping icon over which so much fuss was being made. As none of my friends could see the way I do, I refrained from mentioning it. But when the opportunity arose to converse with one of my saint friends, I mentioned the phenomenon. She had seen the gold light emanating from the same icon as well. Our mother was blessing us all with the gold light of her presence, and we didn't even know it. Hmm. Ah, for all of us, all of those who are listening, you are being blessed with the golden light of God, even if you don't know it. Or believe it. Or believe it. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Until next time, everyone. God bless you. Love you guys. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to rate, review, follow, and like us from wherever you might be listening. On our next episode, we continue the journey with John as we discuss the question, how do I know Jesus is real? If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your family and friends and get the word out about a questioning faith. We'll see you next week and have a happy Easter.